is Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaiacono, or the Cayuga Nation. The Gaiacono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gaikono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gaikono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On March 25, 2022, bioarchaeologist Pamela Geller from the University of Miami met with a panel of SIAM's students and faculty to discuss the politics of human remains the objectification of bodies in anatomical collections, and the importance of studying the historical context that shaped these collections. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Hello, welcome to Radio Siams. I'm your host today, Matthew Velasco, and I'm an assistant professor in anthropology and a core faculty member of the Siams program here at Cornell. I'm delighted and honored to introduce our guest today, Dr. Pamela Geller, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Miami. A bioarchaeologist by training, Dr. Geller studies human remains from archaeological sites and anatomical collections, not only to address questions about identity and lived experience, but also to raise questions about the very foundations of a discipline that has made possible the objectification of certain bodies and the privileging and protection of others. You may be familiar with Dr. Geller's extensive bibliography that engages with critical social and feminist theories to open up space for more fluid and expansive conceptions of sex and gender in the past. This is perhaps best embodied by her 2017 book, The Bioarchaeology of Sociosexual Lives, Queering Common Sense About Sex, Gender, and Sexuality. Today, we're actually going to talk a bit more about Dr. Geller's uh, new project, a book project entitled Your Obedient Servant, which examines a period of U.S. history where the collecting of anatomical specimens and the making of race and nationhood were hauntingly entwined. And this is epitomized by the life and work of Samuel Morton, who we'll, we will discuss at length today. To prepare for this podcast, we all read uh, two of Dr. Geller's recent publications, the first, Building Nation, Becoming Object, The Biopolitics of the Samuel G. Morton Crania Collection, was published in 2020 in Historical Archaeology. The second is a chapter from her recent 2021 book, Theorizing Bioarchaeology with Springer Press, which is entitled, What is Necropolitics? I want to just dive in today in our discussion and before we get to some of the really substantive issues in these pieces, I think it would be uh, helpful for our audience, and I'm certainly curious, to hear more about your journey to bioarchaeology, something about your osteobiography, if you will, how you found bioarchaeology as a discipline, and importantly, how your personal and academic history is in some ways entwined with the Samuel G. Morton Cranial Collection. I'm from Philadelphia originally, outside in the suburbs in New Jersey. And when I was really little, like in the third grade, my dad used to take me to Penn's Museum to um, mostly look at the mummies. 
And I think that from that moment onwards, I always wanted to do anthropology. I know some students stumble into it, you know, accidentally, but it was something that I always wanted to pursue, which is weird because I don't, most people don't even know what anthropology is. And I ended up going to Penn as an undergraduate. And when I was in the classrooms there, you know, it's in an old building kind of like this one, the cabinets on the walls, you know, had the Morton collection in them. And I didn't really think anything of it. So this, I'm going to date myself, which is terrifying. <laughs> but like, I was a Penn as an undergraduate from 92 to 96. So it was, you know, right after the passage of NAGPRA, which did not register on my radar at the time, you know. But I think that it obviously registered on most of my faculty, uh, the, the people teaching me. And, but no one really, I think, knew what to do with it at that time because it was so new. And so the Morton Collection was not controversial other than what Stephen Jay Gould had published about it in This Measure of Man which already was about a decade old, I think, at that point. And as I went through my education, I went, you know, I went straight from undergrad to grad school and then ended up back at Penn to finish up doctoral work. The collection took on a different meaning because at that time I was a NIPER project assistant and one of the things I was tasked with was inventorying the collection for NIPER compliance. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that the Academy of Natural Sciences had gifted. It had been on loan since 1966, but they formally gifted the collection to Penn Museum in 97, probably because they knew what a mess it was going to be to inventory the collection. And so one of the things that I was involved with during that um, period as project assistant was inventorying it, and then I had the privilege to participate in tribe, some tribal visits. At the same time, I was working on my doctoral research, which was pre-Columbian Maya burials. And so that's probably how I more directly came to bioarchaeology is through excavation and, and analysis of uh, burials from this corner of northwestern Belize. But as I was working on those burials, it was becoming harder and harder to reconcile just the, doing research on human remains from this kind of objectified, distanced perspective, but also recognizing that what was going on with pre-Columbian Maya stuff in Belize was something different than what I was, you know, witnessing through these NAGPRA visits and repatriation efforts. And um, I left Penn in 2004. I got my degree. And then always in the back of my mind, this, you know, was the Morton Collection in many ways. So I initiated a research project. I'm like almost embarrassed to say how long ago it was. It was in, 20, it was in 2010. And to ask questions about the things in the collection that struck me as particular or peculiar or like weren't fitting into the patterns, which is, you know, coming out of these kinds of queering ideas that I've been interested in. So there had been rumors that there was women warriors and black Indians in the collection. And I thought, oh, those categories of person are fascinating to me because you can't shove them into these like edict categorizations that we're so used to doing with our, our analysis. So I actually went back to see if I could find those individuals. And then I was engaging with a whole bunch of critical social theories at the time that the conceptual aspect of it kind of just raised a whole host of issues that had to do with not just queering and feminist stuff, which is kind of my bread and butter, but things around violence and, you know, the kinds of ideas that Foucault was putting out there about biopower. And then from Foucault jumping into Mbembe stuff on necropolitics. What I realized as I began to do the exhaustive archival research on Morton was that it was so much bigger than him, which in many ways was intriguing to me. Because, you know, we hear about Morton and 
even now when he's in the popular press, he's pretty much reduced to the scientific racist, you know, which he was, um, without a doubt. But if, you know, we contextualize this by archaeologists, we're supposed to do. So I came to Morton thinking about that kind of contextualization, and I realized it was it was not just about him, but it was about the kinds of consolidations that are happening around biomedicine and scientific research more generally. And that way, it wasn't. It was everyone he was doing work with was complicit in this kind of larger thing. And the theories were great because the data was there, but the theories helped me recognize that it was something that then tied to how we conceptualize, you know, the formation of of the nation state, at least in the United States. I don't know if that's a completely long-winded answer, but I think my engagement with the Morton Collection has has shifted, but has always very much been a part of this kind of larger education and career path that I've had as a, as a bioarch. That makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, if a, a newcomer to your CV would see your work on, you know, myoburials, myocranial modification, and for those who, who've read your work, there is something really of a piece in the questions you're asking and your intellectual commitments that come through across these really what are, you know, in some ways distinct subfields of historical archaeology and bioarchaeology. So it's really interesting to me, you know, as a fan, to, to hear how you conceptualize that narrative, right, and your, your intellectual formation. I think we'll turn to one of our other participants, Amanda Dominguez, if you'd like to introduce yourself in your question. Thank you, Matt. Um, thank you, Dr. Geller. I am really excited to be here. I am Amanda Dominguez. I am a fourth year PhD candidate at the Department of Science and Technology Studies here at Cornell, and I study knowledge production and archaeology. And I am also uh, a fan because your work was one of the first that I read um, in archaeology, and it was very exciting to learn all these things about this field that I'm not very familiar with. But regarding specifically the text that uh, we were supposed to read today, I my question is more about this idea that you bring this biopolitical strategy. And even though you talk about the governmental part of this strategy, I'm more interested in the scientific part because that's what I what I do. And when I was thinking about how science fosters some kinds of lives and also make some kind of life disappear. I was thinking about this idea that you archaeologists use this information that you obtained from bones, human remains that are going to be later repatriated, which is the case of Morton's collection. And I was thinking about the ethics of using this information that today is seen as if was obtained in kind of like an unethical way most of the time because these bones, these human remains were the, the people who, who, they were not authorized, right, to use uh, this, this human remains in the way that people use to obtain scientific information. Anyways, all that, I'm sorry, just to ask your thoughts about the ethics of using this information that scientists obtained from these bones and publishing about them uh, so why should we do that, or sh why should we not do that? Well, thank you for the question. Why should we do that, or why should we not do that, right? I, I think that unless you're going to, when I, okay, 
you know, the, the full disclosure is that when I first started doing research back on the Morton Collection, it never crossed my mind to get permissions from the the Seminoles in particular, who were the descendants of the people that comprised the collection. And I was giving a talk in at Miami for an AIA conference, and I probably, if I'm remembering correctly, probably had the images, photographic images of the skulls. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember when this was. This was maybe 2011, 2012 already, so about 10 years ago. And at the end of the talk in the Q&A, what I realized is that there were members of the tribe in the audience and uh, members of the TIPO office who are not tribal members but um, work for, for the tribe. And the question and answer was pretty grueling and brutal and humbling. Right? <laughs> and um, after that, you know, I did due diligence and went out to the reservation to meet with the members of the TIPO office fully thinking that they were going to tell me that I, I needed to stop doing the research I was doing. But it ended up being incredibly congenial, and uh, they were supportive of it. And obviously, I was more than happy and willing to share with them anything that that I was working on. And f- from that moment on, I felt a lot more comfortable with the research I was doing, right? I'm also, I think some of the research questions I'm asking also are um, about necropolitics or are far more critical of the kinds of, you know, investigations that have happened in the past and far more clear about the suffering that, you know, this this his, this history has, has impelled. But that interaction was very instructive in how I moved forward with how I presented on these things. And so I think that as far as this this kind of research that gets done, unless you unless researchers are willing and able to seek out the input from the, the communities who are most direct, living communities who are most directly impacted by the research that's being done. I don't think it is research that should necessarily be done. And I think that that's a hard thing, right? Because, you know, we do have this really strong colonial legacy in the discipline. But I also think it will be a far more rewarding thing, right? Um, a more rewarding thing in our pedagogy, a more rewarding thing in the information that we, the knowledge that we produce. Because you said you're interested in this production of knowledge. Uh, and so it, it seems like mo- the past couple of years, it's much harder to, you know, do things the way that they have ha- have been historically done. So I'm not entirely certain if that answers your question. I know that that the discipline right now is in, in, is in, a, in a massive self-reflection, state of self-reflection that has to do with everything about the research questions we ask, the methods we use, the way we disseminate knowledge, you know, whether or not we are showing images. And I think that... Uh, I'm not a huge advocate of burning everything down at this point um, because I do love bioarchaeology and I do think anthropology has an incredibly important contribution to make to the world. But I do think the institutions as are now are a bit dysfunctional and probably need some things to remedy them. And that, that most likely will involve sincere collaborations, which is not new. I mean, that's, built, that's you know, baked into NAGPRA. Thank you. That that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I was just just a quick follow up. Um, it's as a researcher, um, archaeologists don't know if the information that they're reading was actually gone through the tribes, like go through the approval of the tribes. So you, when you're doing your research, do you try to contact the archaeologists who did the research and try to get information if the tribes are involved and if they're not involved you don't use the research or you try to use in a way 
just like you said, oh, because it's out there, I don't want to burn everything. I mean, are you talking about the Morton collection in particular? Uh, no, in your work in general. That if we, we make use of research that's already out there. Yeah, and when you do, if you try to figure out if there's approval from the tribes for this research to be published, or if you just assume that people did their due diligence and you use the research. I mean, I would assume that until recently, there hasn't been much due diligence done to begin with. And if, if you're asking if I would continue to use the, the data that have been collected, despite the fact that those kinds of due diligence hadn't been done, I can think about things like the Heyman Todd collection, like other like legacy collections in particular. You know, I'm not entirely certain where we draw the line at this point. I, I don't know if I would throw out all of the data that has been collected. You know, I guess maybe the comparison would be whether or not we use data that's been collected during like no Nazi science, for instance, right? And most people have erred on the side of completely disregarding any of that data, you know, given the pretty nefarious ways by which it was it was culled. I don't know if I would go as far to equate the bioarchaeological data that has been collected to Nazi data, but I guess it would be, for me, it would probably be contingent on a case-by-case -case at this point. Hello, my name is Sofia Taborski. I'm a PhD candidate in classical archaeology. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Geller. Um, and I was wondering, um, you mentioned in your Necropolitics article that it need not be a modern phenomenon. So I'm not asking you for a, you know, processual checklist by any means, but what are some uh, things you would look for to apply a Necropolitics approach to a society or culture or time point? See, I actually would be more reticent to apply it to antiquity only because of the way that the way that Mbembe initially conceived of necropolitics, how he's tying it to modernity in many ways, which isn't to say that there aren't aspects of, you know, uh, making live and letting die that existed in antiquity. I just, I would be more hesitant. Um, Foucault and Mbembe are talking about these very specific, you know, sociopolitical circumstances that track from these moments of colonialism up to the present day. So I, I am very always very wary of concepts which I find incredibly useful. Like intersectionality is another concept, you know, these that have a utility, but I think that in order to make them applicable to ancient case studies, you have to actually do some you know, like conceptual labor to figure out what is useful and and applicable, right, to those moments in time. Because like you know, Foucault and Mbembe are tying a lot of this, not just to colonialism, but to capitalism. And I don't know if you're, you know, seeing that in some of your, your ancient case studies from various parts of the world. Hi, my name is Grace Hermes, and I'm a first-year Master's of Archaeology student here at SIAMS. My question for you is about how your background in feminist theory and queer studies influences the approach you bring to your study of necropolitics and a biopolitical approach to bioarchaeology. I'm curious if there's something unique that you feel like a feminist approach can bring to this work and how we should consider the role of feminist theory in this more broader study of bodies and the way they interact with power. Thank you for the question. Um, I approach bodies from a feminist perspective. I mean, that's my entry point for everything. And um, 
it, especially, I, I mean, I will never not see a utility for feminist ideas. As far as it then links up to thinking about necropolitics and biopower, some of the, the questions that I originally approached with the Morton Collection in particular had to do with gender, right? I, that was my entry in. It wasn't even race because I think that making live and letting die has, as, it, as it applies to the way that medical and scientific studies have proceeded, have you know, historically looked at the female body as something that is pathological, Right. That stuff to me predates even these kinds of racial categorizations that are that are going on. And with the standard male body in place, you know, that idea that women, woman, women, right, uh, with a capital O is othered, creates a really interesting parallel um, to what we see with racial racializing bodies. Right. So, you know, I'm not sure if that gets at your question exactly, but um you know, I don't necessarily, I mean, I think that, you know, Foucault was always begging a feminist critique, which is why you then had authors like Judith Butler and, you know, Elizabeth Gross. And so th those kinds of feminist scholars are the ones that have actually been just as useful, if not more useful, who I have not, you know, I did not mention in this necropolitical chapter. But in the book, there's this, a very large chapter on intersectionality, and you can't talk about intersectionality without talking about necropolitics also. Um, it's that kind of way by which we see bodies being put at risk or historically marginalized. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. We're at this this point where identity politics are such a hot topic, and I think a lot just of the academy is questioning what is the role of feminism? Is this something that only has to concern with gender? And so I think it's really wonderful to see you like applying this background and this framework to a larger scope. It can never just be about gender, right? I mean, that's why intersectionality is such a um, massively important concept because it helps us recognize how gender is inextricably like intertwined with class and race and nation and religion and all that is situated within a specific context. Hi, I'm Anna Whittemore and I'm a third year PhD student in the Department of Anthropology. I think that my question is, it's maybe sort of the opposite of Sophia's. What was coming into my mind as I was learning about this practice of skull collecting is how much it has this weird resemblance to trophy taking. Like they were going and taking the heads of their enemies and modifying in the, them in these sort of specific ways. And if you take the criteria that we use to identify trophy heads in South America, specific body parts that are taken and, and modified in the systematic way. I mean, it, it's exactly like what they were doing. It's exactly like th these practices of these medical men are, if you ob examine them in this sort of objectified way, it's like the practices of people who were they, who they were attempting to other, I don't know. And I was, I guess I was wondering about whether there's any value to this sort of cultural relativity comparison of putting them in the frameworks that they were using to to other indigenous people or is that just something that's kind of more more of a striking parallel than anything that's that's valuable to actually do for analytical purposes I mean that's what what anthropology does really well right you take these kinds of phenomena that you see cross culturally 
and then begin to try and nuance them and think about the generalities or the specifics of them, right? So why is there such a fixation on heads and skulls, right? Like, which is a very pretty ubiquitous cross-culturally. And then when you contextualize that, you can begin to pull apart what the significance of that is, right? So with Morton and his various colleagues who are collecting skulls, there doesn't seem to, I mean, you still have all those kinds of power inequities built into it, you know, and those kinds of dehumanizations that are taking place. But I'm not entirely certain that you have the kinds of more supernatural, religious, you know, cultural specificities about the meanings of heads that you're seeing in certain kinds of um, indigenous, you know, cultures. Because the Maya did trophy taking too, right? You guys just have way better preservation in the Andes. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're doing it as a part, you know, not because they're necessarily fetishizing the skull in the same way that Morton and his colleagues are, right? There's something that actually ties into these larger, you know, mythologizing these beliefs that, that are, I mean, I don't want to sit there and say it's all supernatural and it's spiritual and, you know, and then, and then somehow we can, you know, excuse it because it's cultural relative, you know, it's still, there's still violence at the core of some of that stuff. Um, but the, the, I do think that the contextualized meanings are a way to think about the relationality, it sounds like you're trying to get at, right? Like, how do we think about these kinds of relational phenomena and do it in such a way that we're not necessarily conflating them, right, equating them, but seeing things that are shared and also recognizing the kinds of disparate significances. Yeah, yeah, I guess that, that gets at it, right? These... I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that the sort of scientific um, fetishization of the skull is, it's also sort of a form of modern um, ideology and spirituality. Like, you can keep drawing comparisons, but at some point it's like, should you? You can draw the comparison, but what purpose is it? Is it serving? But yeah, I think you think you you covered that really well. I mean, there's also a massive disparity. Like Morton has, and the colleagues that are collecting skulls are using that collection as the basis for Western biomedical practice, which has had far more you know impact in a global way today. You know, uh, so th- that kind of inequity is, um, I guess, even to me, it seemed a little bit more insidious. You know, less excusable. Hi, I'm Emily Sharp, and I'm a master's student in archaeology with SIAMS. And uh, my question actually builds on what uh, Anna just said when it comes to the skulls, because I'm really grappling with this idea that, you know, why why would they want to preserve the any evidence of the, the horrors that were inflicted upon these people? Why would they want to preserve, you know, these memories of marginalized people in society? And you know, when we think of where Morton's collection comes from, it, it you can't erase that part of it, right? Because there's so many marks of violence or, or even just the, um, the provenance of where the things are. So, you know, why preserve this evidence? I mean, you've told us there were children in this collection. And, and does this relate to necropolitics? Is this about, you know, controlling the dead and, like, justifying um, the inferiority of other people's... I, I think there's a question. <laughs> there is. I mean, I think you answered it, right? It is oh, no. directly tied to necropolitics, right? And necropolitics is about power, right? And it's the idea that you're creating something that's authoritative, and there's a lack of hubris in that. And so there's also a lack of accountability because you think that you're 
on the right side of history in many ways. I, you know, I will say that there are certain kinds of interesting silences in the correspondences of the people who are getting skulls from Morton. Very rarely do you hear the kinds of more horrific details about how they're actually, you know, what they're actually doing with the skulls. And there's a couple letters where, you know, they talk about like boiling them to, to deflesh them, but you don't really get into that kind of the, the ooze, right? People like skulls because they're nice and clean and they are, you know, almost depersonalized. But I think that that idea about, you know, why they weren't, why there was no shame in collecting it tracks to tracks to an issue of power. I mean, it's probably comparable in many ways to why the Nazis felt they needed to film and document so much of stuff, the stuff that was happening in the death camps. You know, that they, there, there was no sense that what the genocide they were committing was problematic to them, right? Which is why they were able to, to do it. Yeah, that, that's exactly where I thought of this question, actually, in your book when you're talking about how the Nazis destroyed the Jewish cemeteries. And I mean, that also is in my family history. And I was like thinking about how could they want to simultaneously destroy this like physical history, but still want to study the Jewish people. And then that's so I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where I got it from and um, is something I'm struggling with in my own research of Roman Egyptian mummies in a totally different place from Nazis. How are you, how are, am I allowed to ask a question? Yeah. How are you bringing that into your research? Thank you for asking. I'm, I'm grappling with, um, well, first of all, I'm looking at the sex and gender of these a peculiar group of mummies. Um, so obviously I'm drawing very heavily from your research. And what I'm doing, or what I'm grappling with is just the fact that we have these bodies that are very isolated from their group. They're all found over Europe. They're not even in Egypt anymore. And, you know, I'm grappling with the idea of object versus body, I think is really what comes into play here. And also just how in, you know, the history of mummy studies, like the Victorian era, they were just displayed as oddities, but they still wanted to study them. So then I have all this weird information about them from that era. It's just been really hard. I keep saying grapple, but that is the verb that I feel. <laughs> I think Mbembe's concept becoming object was one of the things that was the most useful for me to, to try and use as a framing device for that. And he, I mean, I, and mine is an adaptation of his becoming object, but in order to study, you know, bodies in that way, there has to be, a, it's a process. And that process involves this, you know, tracking of like the frag there's things that have to happen for for something that's subjective and humanized to become something that is a specimen um right so for the morton stuff and this is probably i would think most collections of bodies right that collection then depersonalizes strips of identity fragments sometimes and mummies aren't necessarily being fragmented uh, are they <laughs> um some of the specimen excuse me individuals in my group um are just ahead and that's been really hard to see because also it goes so against Egyptian, ancient Egyptian concepts of keeping the body together. Some are fragmented. Yeah, yeah. and that, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Whatever is being done is a kind of desecration of those normative mortuary practices that are supposed to happen, right? And that's part of it, right? There's these, these kinds of various stages that happen with that becoming object. And even the language, right? Like the language, you know, our inclination is to call them specimens because it's analytical, right? And that analytical is allowing us to distance 
So, so it, you know, in many ways, it's a slippery slope. How do you do this kind of research without without perpetuating the same kinds of violences that have historically, you know, defined the research? Absolutely. Thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation, and because we are limited on time, what I want to try to do is pull together some different threads from this discussion into a final question. And so you've talked about the politics of becoming object right now with regard to ancient Egyptian mummies, with the uh, provocation to think about trophy heads, and certainly in your own research with uh, the Morton collection. You've also noted, as, as many of our listeners will be aware, the discipline of anthropology and the discipline of of bioarchaeology is in a state of self-reflection. And finally, you you early on in our discussion today, you said the you know the history or the issues we're we're addressing today are so much bigger than Morton, right? And so what I want to posit, and I think I think you would agree, right? Not only in his his historical period, but transhistorically, right? I think there's a an ease that would come to dismissing Morton in racial science and seeing our own practices as as uh, distinctly apart from the practices of the 19th and, and early 20th century. So what I want to ask you is to, I want to invite you really to, to think, how should we be thinking about skeletal collections more broadly that maybe were not, you know, taken from a battlefield in these really horrific and inviolate contexts. Maybe they were well-documented and legally acquired, but nonetheless, disproportionately involve marginalized or disenfranchised peoples. How should we be thinking about our relationship as teachers, as researchers to these collections with this broader history in mind? And of course, so I'm not holding you to a formal recommendations, <laughs> but, <laughs> but an, invita an invitation to, to raise questions that we should be asking ourselves right now, because it's been so, the, the process of becoming object, I would argue, is so deeply normalized into the constitution of any osteology laboratory. Um, and, you know, your work and, and the uh, work by Carlina Delacova, Rachel Watkins, who are, are, are compelling us to to question this the the very fabric of the discipline now not just the foundations in the past so that's many ramblings and threads that that i'll let you to, to sew together or rip apart oh no <laughs> thanks Matt. just an easy question to end on thank you um I mean, I think there's many ways that we can do this and ways that I've been actively thinking about. Because again, like I said, I think at one point, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, like after Albuquerque and the essays in 2019, I was like, we should burn it all down, right? That's how I felt after all of that stuff. Um, I mean, I was personally invested in it too, and it was emotionally exhausting. But then with the pandemic, I realized that burning it all down might not be the best solution because I, uh, I mean, from the, pers the perspective of bioarch and anthropology, I, I love anthropology and I love bioarchaeology. And I also, you know, if you, all you need to do is look around and realize like sometimes it's good to have institutions and they're super flawed. So how can we actually make the institutions less flawed and more compassionate, I think, and kinder, right? And so that's where I kind of am now. And that maybe that's just me getting old, you know, <laughs> and like, um, having more of a stake in the game. So as far as what we do with like skeletal collections more generally, like the Morton collection as a heart is, it's, it's, it's a no brainer, right? There's that collection 
it, it compelled suffering and it continues to do so. Right. So like there are aspects of it that we really need to just kind of, um, atone for the sins of our, our forefathers, not many foremothers in, in this situation. And, but as far as collections more generally, I see a utility to them. I really do. I mean, I, a pedagogical utility, right? So, but then how do we proceed to do that in a way that doesn't perpetuate these kinds of the legacies that, you know, we're concerned about? And I, I mean, for me, I've been very invested in trying to think about how we bring compassion into the discipline. It's one of the things I'll be talking about at the essays in a session honoring my mentor, Wendy Ashmore. Because she was, you know, a very compassionate mentor and archaeologist. And so I see her work as a way by which we can use this, this as a springboard to create an archaeology of compassion. Now, I'm not the only person who's started talking about this. I know that there's some publications more recently that are beginning to think about how you do that. And I think that, you know, to come back to your question, Grace, like to me that's a feminist thing, right? Like the, how do you think about the way that emotion is necessary for doing archaeology? And historically, that's been like, no, it's rational science. It's objective. We can't, it, there's no emotion, right? But like, I don't know how you do repatriation stuff without emotion, right? I don't know how you begin to do anything that's decolonial without emotion, right? And that, that tracks back to Franz Fanon. You know, he, in his decolonial work, he was an advocate for violence as a solution to change. But he also, that was coming from a place of, you know, this this psychiatric work that he was doing with people who were deeply traumatized by, you know, these, these colonial experiences. And there was, there was compassion at the root of that, right? It's kind of, someone has written about him and talked about radical empathy. I mean, empathy to me is great. You know, we all are trying to be empathetic with how, you know, walking in someone else's shoes. But if you're not then going to, the difference between empathy and compassion is that, like, compassion is praxis, right? Empathy is being able to uh, relate to someone, and compassion's then doing something about that, right, in the name of kindness that ameliorates suffering. And so, so moving forward with our, our collections, our skeletal collections, I think that if you approach any of them from a position of compassion where you, you acknowledge the hu humanity in the materials that you are studying, and that becomes an ethos within your pedagogy about how you train students, right, and you put that at the forefront of it, right, it's not like because like most, you know, textbooks, like I think in Larson's bioarchaeology textbook, Ethics is like three pages, you know, however many pages that book is, right? Like Tim White's the same way. Like, I mean, in the osteology textbook, it's, he doesn't do a very good job now with ethics because ethics is, is tied to compassion for me. So if you're teaching using collections, that, that has to be at the forefront of any, anything you do as a professor, right? And then as a student who's receiving that, that's how you start the semester off. And I know you and I have been talking, like, in the one of the chapters in this theorizing bioarchaeology, I think it's in the What is Bioethos chapter, my conversations with people who work in the medical field are way ahead of the game because, you know, when they train medical students now, because of all these kinds of this history of pretty insidious stuff, there's a far more robust bioethics in place. So they make their medical school students at the beginning of their training, you know, take these like a Hippocratic Oath, but like these variations on Hippocratic Oaths, and most medical schools have them, right? And at the end of like their cadaver labs, they don't even, I don't know if they call them cadavers anymore, I think they call them willed, willed bodies, right, or donors. You know, they have these um, memorial services for them and then they cremate them, right? Like, so there's like a whole way by which when they engage with dead bodies, you know, which are far messier than the ones that we engage with, but when they engage with dead bodies, they, there's this, um, it's a compassionate approach that is, that is, um, baked into the training. And I think that if we can begin to take some of those lessons in hand, 
then that will probably benefit all of us, right? When we teach osteology classes or when students go into the field to study human remains, if you're doing it from a place that's contextualized and compassionate, and, uh, you know, I guess maybe the debate is, like, is compassion a universal thing? I think, it, I think it, I mean, I'm still grappling with that, but I think it might be, and some of the stuff I've been reading is coming from, like, Thich Nhat Hanh, but that would be the starting point for me, to bring it all together, yeah. yeah. It's hard to think of anything more insightful to say than that and, and more impactful and powerful than, than beginning from compassion, and maybe the answer won't lie with the methods and frameworks of science which got us to this point today. You've been listening to Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next regular podcast will be with Lynn Meskell from the University of Pennsylvania. Stay tuned also for the final two episodes of our special eight-part series, Sapiens Talk Back, which will be released on April 20th and April 27th, 2022. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.